0: Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's all-in podcast on genre television, presently focused on HBO's Watchmen. I'm Josh Wigler, your host here on Series Regular, and this week we are diving deep into Season 1, Episode 2 of Watchmen, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship, which is written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Hughes, and directed by Nicole Cassell. Joining me to break it all down is my weekly Watchmen co-host, a man with friends in high places much like Will, the great Antonio in the Sky, Antonio Mazzaro. How are you doing, Antonio?
1: Josh, I'm doing fine. Pardon me. I'm going to uh, pluck a nice juicy tomato off of this tree next to me and take a nice bite
0: and just squeeze out the juices onto the soil because that is uh, how liberal you can be with the with the beautiful fruits of your labor.
1: <laughs> You're using some uh, really interesting buzzwords there. Let's just, let's just talk about the show, shall we?
0: It's impossible not to use buzzwords talking about <laughs> Watchmen, which we are doing here every single week on series regular throughout Watchmen season. We got a lot of really nice, kind feedback from you people out there. Thank you so much for listening in to our first podcast. A lot of meat on the bone, a lot to chew on, we've got a lot of the bedrock in place now, and we're really excited to start digging into the storyline proper. Antonio, there's a lot of Watchmen to get through here this week in week two of the series,
1: definitely. And obviously, as we talked about last week, the show is not holding hands when it comes to the source material from the comic. We will intersperse that as it is relevant throughout, but we're not going to be doing deeper dives on the whole setup of the comic book like we did last week. So hopefully, Josh, we're able to be a little more efficient this week uh, in our coverage of the moment to moment of this week's episode
0: before we even get into the episode, just kind of big picture, Uh, you know, we are a week into the world knowing what Watchmen is, knowing what Damon Lindelof's vision for this series is. What are some of your takeaways to the response to Watchmen so far, just culturally from what you're gathering?
1: I was very pleased. As I talked about on the first podcast, uh, the show is uh, walking a very high wire in terms of its ability to comment on race and race issues and to not be exploitative, but to be in a position where people are learning or people are feeling without, as I said, without generating those feelings from real moments of exploitation. I think the premiere obviously had a lot more heavy lifting to do in that regard, but the show is not shying away from that. And I think as far as the way uh, Watchmen itself, a comic book, dealing with these heavy issues in society, uh, I think it's very much in keeping with that source material. I like, for example, that we're not just covering one moment in time in Tulsa in 2019, that we're covering, who Knows how many timelines we're going back to the 1920s. We're talking about some of these things that happened that were never corrected, that were never properly dealt with, that were never addressed. The show is making clear what would happen, uh, I think, in a lot of ways when people would would try to address things like that. And the the fights we have to be ready to fight, uh, and we have to be willing to have if we're going to do the right thing uh, and stand up on some of these issues. So it's uh it's crazy that a show's doing that under the conceit of a superhero show, if you will, under. The conceit of a prestige drama on HBO at nine o'clock—that's probably going to, you know, make us eat popcorn as much as be interested. It, this is not. Uh, there are plenty of shows out there, obviously, that are great in terms of the social commentary. Uh, to do it in in this uh, this level of show for HBO and for Damon Lindelof, I think it continues to shine through uh, that they're not going to shy away from that. And I think it's really really impressive that the show is is really just sticking with that. We're, we're beginning both episodes, Josh, by flashing back to the twenties, uh, or maybe even in this case before the twenties, which is. Uh, not what I expected from Watchmen and certainly not what I expected from just thinking about the show in general and yet here we are
0: yeah, here we are indeed as week two of Watchmen indeed does begin during World War One. We are seeing the the origin story of the watch over this boy letter. Not on my bingo card for what we were going to be getting <laughs> at the start of the second episode of Watchmen A going back to World War One, but also to to get what I what I really thought was an unexpected origin story for this obviously this very important message that is connected to the to the young boy who we know is going to grow up and become will uh, Lewis Gossett Jr., the character that he's playing in the present day timeline. What did you think of this uh, this first scene set during World War I in Germany?
1: Like you said, I didn't expect it either. It is uh, the the fascinating thing for me, of course, is when you see the origin of the letter, you see when the letter was obtained, uh, and then we have essentially a series of uh, voices reading the letter. We have Will Reeves as a young boy reading the letter. We have his father reading the letter. Uh, we have Will Reeves as an older man. Uh, you hear him reading some parts of the letter, and you just have to think to yourself, like the sentiments contained in that letter, while they were clearly manipulative, and they were clearly geared. And keep in mind, this is written on behalf of a nation who will go on to do the things that Germany went on to do uh, in the 1930s and into World War II. And yet, you got to imagine that that young kid, young Will Reeves, carrying that letter away, having it be the last reminder of his father, he probably read those words thousands of times, right? And so was he influenced by those words? I'm fascinated to know, did Will Reeves, at some point, uh, as the letter said, You will find friends who will help you along. The episode ends with a literal show of his friends that he's talked about in the episode. Uh, I want to know, are we going to see Will Reeves in Germany in 1930 or 1940? Are we going to see that lens of this show because of this letter? I, I, I think it's at least on the table, right?
0: If you were to put money on it right now, do you think that every episode of Watchmen is going to open with some sort of flashback to a historical event, going further and further into the past, specifically Will's past?
1: It's like one is something that happens, and two is a pattern, right, or something? I don't know.
0: three is a trend, if it a trend. next week, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we're looking at that we're definitely looking out to see we're a week how the away from episode. that answer. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So two is a pattern. We'll see if three becomes a trend.
0: All right. So in in modern day, we see uh, we we pick right back up where we left off. In fact, we get it. um, You know, we get it from Will's perspective this time as Angela in her car is pulling up to the site where Judd Crawford is hanging from the tree and Will has his flashlight and Angela says, turn it off or I'll shoot. She sees the horror, we kind of yada yada through it a little bit because we've really lingered on it already at this point point. Uh, and she goes and she grabs Will and takes him to the car and that's where we get the episode title, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship, hanging in the air uh, really stylistically uh, not exactly necessarily how they would do it in the graphic novel, but definitely feels of a piece with uh, the way that there would be these, these great quotes at the end of every chapter, every issue of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen. I feel like the, the show is is definitely playing around with that, but doing it in a way that is maybe a little more conducive to the television medium. Even still, just having these huge, hanging, big, blocky, yellow, beefy letters uh, hanging in the air. You know, it's just its just a lot. I mean, these are mouthful, uh, these titles. Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship, a killer for headlines, I'll tell it, you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, not my job, but I understand yours. Uh, tough and I, tough I'm kidding. sure. I'm sure. I, I like, though, in a way that the graphic novel doesn't do it, but maybe in a way a show like Ozark, for example, does it. When you see the the big, beefy yellow letters hanging in the sky here, you're immediately starting to wonder, how's that going to tie into the episode? Because you remember last week, uh, it's summer and we're running out of ice. Had you been some Oklahoma st- student, if you had been a student of musical theater, you might have realized that Judd was going to die in that episode because you would have right. thought That's a lyric from Judd is dead. And, and when he introduces himself as Judd, oh. Oh no! Like we're going to go there, so I'm immediately on alert. Like where where are we going to see martial feats of Comanche horsemanship? Uh, much in the way that I am when I watch an episode of Ozark and I see an image with images from the episode, and you're wondering like, oh, when am I going to see a wheelchair on fire? Like how's that going to happen? I'm wondering like what are the martial feats of Comanche horsemanship I'm going to see? Uh, and then we come to find out it is uh, it's much more subtle than that in this episode. Maybe
0: yeah, we'll we'll call it out when we get there. It's definitely something that you can dig into. Yeah. So Angela and Will are. Going to go to um, uh, Milk and Hanoi, the the bakery. <laughs> Great play on words, by the way.
1: Yeah, this is like right out of uh, the Good Place. I love it.
0: Yes, yes, really good. So Angela's going to take Will back to the bakery. She's going to make him a quick, uh, quick cup of coffee in the officially the world's greatest mom mug. Who are we to dispute? the great Regina King earning that status in the world of Watchmen. He's got pills on him. He's got the paper on him. She puts all of that away. She goes deep into the depths of her own chamber uh, and leaves Will behind. It just needs a moment, understandably, to to scream yeah. this out. You know, this person who who, as we come to understand... In this episode, the sort of the origin story of the friendship, the camaraderie between Judd and Angela is built on such a sensitive event and to lose him in such such an absolutely horrible fashion must be devastating for her, Uh, and she has this very confusing case that she now has to work under these very confusing circumstances of finding this man with Judd in the middle of the field. Yeah, I think you could forgive her for rattling the cages, as Batman would once uh, uh, suggest you do, and screaming her head off. Makes a lot of sense to me.
1: I really like the primal scream. Uh, Obviously, Regina King is a phenomenal actor, and to give her that moment, it it was really well captured and really well done. I also really like that, Josh, she has come into the scene vulnerable with her guard down she was told to show up not in costume uh, but after she gets her primal scream moment sister's got to come on she's got to put the she's got to put the nun costume on so I think that's interesting insight into her character in a way like she does not feel comfortable approaching this guy embracing this guy and getting any information out of him without putting her mask on even though he's already seen her face she's not doing this just to cover up her her identity I think when she puts that that costume on uh, she'd be comes a different person clearly
0: Well, that's a theme in Watchmen. There's, you know, from Rorschach's perspective in the graphic novel, he's often talking about how Walter Kovacs is the mask and the Rorschach inkblot mask, that's his real face. He talks about how I put my face on. Even in this first episode of this series, Judd says to Looking Glass at one point, could you put your face on uh, so that he can stare at himself in the mirror mask so he can tie his tie? So that's definitely very much in play. And I totally agree with that read, that there's something like comforting about becoming Sister Knight And it's like, you know, really you're, you're stepping into a persona. It gives you maybe an extra level of confidence that she doesn't have in the moment outside of it. Certainly if she's uh, spiritually aligned with some of the other masks of the Watchmen universe, Uh, she comes back. It takes the exact amount of time to make that cup of coffee as it takes to, for, for Angela Abar to get into sister night gear, which I think is very impressive turnaround time.
1: Definitely. She has a damn fine cup of coffee too. I'm sure.
0: (laughs) I'm sure Uh, no sugar for the coffee. Rorschach would be mad. Will Reeves not thrilled about it either. Some bakery he says Uh right. there's no sugar <laughs> for the coffee <laughs> and then they, they engage a little bit of a, of a, of a war of the words uh, War of the Worlds is coming later on in the episode but a little wordplay a little, word play, a little yeah, skirmish here. Pointed
1: that- repartee
0: I think that we really want to pay attention to, as Will points out uh, deeper into the conversation. He's going to say, I've told you stuff. You're just not listening. You're not paying attention to what it is I'm saying. So, Antonio, perhaps we should pay attention to the conversation that is at play here between Angela and Will.
1: I think we should. Uh, So what do we have? He he basically claims, he says, I'm the man who strung up your police chief, uh, which we don't. Repeatedly. uh, Which repeatedly, repeatedly, which I don't think we think is the case. Do you think it's the case?
0: If he's very serious about I can lift 200 pounds, like, you know, it, that's that's the comment that he makes to her the first time he sees her. He's now saying repeatedly, I'm the one who strung your chief of police up. But he's also saying maybe I'm Dr. Manhattan. Right. Uh, so, like, at, at what point do you want to take him seriously? At what point do you and, and which parts of what he's saying do you want to take seriously? You know, is he the person who strung the chief of police up? Does he mean it metaphorically? Does he mean like he he and Judd were working together on something, or he's got some other relationship with Judd that led to Judd hanging from the tree, or did he physically actually do it? These are questions that we should be asking right now.
1: As we talked about last week, uh, he's the guy who called. He somehow got his wheelchair up there under that tree. So there's something more going on that we don't know about. Uh, And he is somehow involved in it in some way, and we don't know about it. He also says, I'm 105 years old and you curse too much. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes. He says that he says about Dr. Manhattan, he, he really is uh, hammering the point home about Dr. Manhattan, that he can make copies, he can do all these other things, but then he admits he's not Dr. Manhattan, which made me laugh. All right, I'm not Dr. Manhattan. You got me. Like yeah. in the course of one conversation, he's also taking pills that he says are for his memory. Is that what you think they're for?
0: That's what he said. They help me with my memory. It's been a long time since I've been home. He's 105, Antonio. If yeah. he doesn't need help with his memory, then he is a superhuman and he may be Dr. Manhattan.
1: Sure. I just was. I guess I was unaware that there were like nitro-like pills that would boost and instantly boost someone's memory. But maybe not. Maybe there are.
0: He also says uh, before he even gets into being Doctor Manhattan, he says, "I killed. I killed him all by myself. I used my psychic powers. I can manipulate material with my mind." Uh, And that's when he says, "Maybe I'm Doctor Manhattan." Right. Um, But I do think it's worth pointing out. You know, a lot of the discourse about Watchmen is that everybody, all of like the quote-unquote superheroes are, are vigilante crime fighters who don't have any superpowers to speak of except for Dr. Manhattan. And I think that that is mostly true. But the origin story of the gigantic freaking telepathic squid that Ozymandias drops into the middle of New York City at the end of the graphic novel and is certainly a precursor to the squid rain we saw in the first episode— of this series uh that that that, that creature was designed from the brain of a sensitive, of somebody with like vague psychic powers. So in the world of Watchmen, it's not really made a very big deal of in the source material, but it certainly exists within the source material that there may be sensitives out in the world of Watchmen. So Will saying I used my psychic powers here is a laugh line, but is it is it necessarily wrong? Maybe there's some truth to that, or at the very least that we should be considering the possibility that somebody does have some sort of psychic skill within the cast of this uh, show.
1: What you're saying to me is we're going to see a scene at the beginning of next episode with Will Reeves in World War II using psychic powers to scare (laughs) Hitler. Is that what it's going to be? I mean, I don't know.
0: That could be. Hitler was
1: obsessed with that sort of stuff. You never know. You
0: never know. Maybe that's
1: what the pills are for. Who knows? But uh, obviously the line that seemingly jumped out besides the psychic powers, which I think you're right to observe, there are psychic and Psychic sensitive people. It was very important to Ozymandias that the squid have these psychic abilities, that it have this psychic connection, so that when it happened, when it was transported, or or when it when it exploded, essentially, people that were sensitive all over the world would feel like it were real, like well, they would feel like this did come from another dimension. They would feel like something had happened. They were tapped into something. That's why the squid had to have some kind of psychic connection, so that it would set off all these people around the world, then it would feel more real to people all around the world. And as a matter of fact, I think a lot of the death toll isn't just from the incident itself, but it's from these people who reacted to the incident and how it made them feel uh, as a result of that psychic trigger. So it is a very real thing as you're observing. Also a very real thing, unfortunately, as we found out in this episode, is that Judd does have skeletons in his closet, as Will says here. That's the line I think that jumps out to Angela because she back-references it later. And that's certainly the line, if you're rewatching, I think immediately you'll say, oh yeah, skeletons in the closet. There was literally something awful in his closet. Here we go. But... I, the other thing he says that Will says here is that there's a vast and insidious conspiracy at play here in Tulsa. That's language right from the graphic novel as well, right, Josh?
0: Yeah, right from the graphic novel associated with Rorschach, obviously R- Rorschach associated with the Seventh Cavalry. And I, yeah, I mean, I, there's there's a lot of lines that are straight up from the comic book that are repeated on the show. And I, you have to wonder what's the line between fan service and why a line like that would be deliberately concocted here, why, why it would be deliberately evoked in this moment.
1: I think HBO leaned into it with the post-premiere trailer as well, sort of just directly referencing the vast and insidious conspiracy. So it, it definitely seems like that's something uh, we're going to be tackling. And I love, I love that. I love that the graphic novel Watchmen starts with the mystery who killed the comedian and in uncovering that mystery and in these superheroes coming to grips with the fact that they may be in the crosshairs for one reason or another based on things they've done in the past we solve a very different mystery that we didn't even know we were solving and i'm very curious to see if that's the if that's what the show is going to be trying to execute here yes Poor Judd is dead. Who killed Judd uh, is the mystery that we're trying to uncover. But are we going to solve a mystery we don't even realize we're investigating is definitely something that I, I can't wait to find out over the course of the rest of this season as HBO teased in the trailer after the premiere.
0: Yeah. Will says that she needs to be listening more more carefully, and he says, I've told you everything in, in pieces. If I told you all about it, your head would explode, so I have to give it to you in pieces. So maybe we know by the end of this episode that he's her grandfather, right? So what if he is a psychic, and she's a psychic too, and if he gives her <laughs> too much information, she's going to have a psychic meltdown.
1: <laughs> I'm already a little bit, I'm mean, based on my lifetime of Catholic education, I'm already a little bit non-sensitive. Uh, you tell me there's a psychic None wandering around out there. I'm terrified.
0: Psychic sister night. Uh, <laughs> all right, so he terrifying. He does, the one bit of information he's willing to give up is uh, his name. I'm um, Will. I'm um, Will is what he says. She gets the call that they found Judd, and very very. I I was taken aback by this, and I shouldn't have been. But she she hangs up the call. She grabs the coffee that she had given to Will and bags it up. It's like, yeah, of course. That makes sense. Get that evidence. Get that DNA. She's Uh,
1: locking eyes with him while she's doing it, too. I know. That's great.
0: You got got. So, yeah, so she's going to leave. She's going to rip out of her secret headquarters. And we are going to stop by for a quick scene at the Tulsa newsstand where we're going to get some updates on the weather. Now to Bunny Colvin with weather.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, well, this is not Amsterdam. The Amsterdam is burst and squid are coming out. This is, uh, yeah, we, we we see just in the background again, the show is world building, that the squids seem to be focused on four cities and Tulsa is one of them. Uh, Tulsa, Vancouver, Jakarta, and Leningrad is also referenced. I think if you're, if you're calling it Leningrad openly, the, I would take that to mean that the Soviet Union never fell, which I think makes sense right because world war three never happened and because the u.s and the soviet union probably put down their weapons to an extent i'm not sure that the cold war ever really ended right so that means that the soviet union probably never fell and thus saint petersburg is still leningrad in the parlance of the times and speaking of the times the new york times headline uh, or on the standee also makes clear it seems like the squid are limited to these four cities was that your read from this scene as well
0: I didn't, ca- I didn't catch that personally. Uh, I trust you. You've got a great eye for this thing. So if that's what you read, then yeah. I believe it.
1: I think, I mean, I do think that's what's happening. And I think that's what was said on, you know, in the dialogue, Vancouver, Jakarta, Tulsa and Leningrad. The newspaper man, of course, blaming Robert Redford and what he calls the Lib which triggered me. <laughs> yes. uh, and but he also does have he has no time for Joe Jr. He has no time for Senator Keene, the person who seems to be running for president, who is also now a character on this show, because it. it Nobody's doing. Nobody's serving for this newspaper man's interest. The newspaper stand, obviously a motif uh, from the comic, an ongoing story that's told as we see uh, scenes at the newspaper stand repeatedly, I think in almost every chapter of Watchmen. So not surprised we've got a newspaper scene. I'm expecting, Josh, you think we'll go back here uh, in future episodes?
0: if it's anything like the graphic novel then definitely it was a, the the bernards were a big part of the comic book and we would check in with these people uh frequently as just interstitials that were helping to build up the the tragedy of what would happen in new york eventually and how all of these people who were just kind of bit players background players in new york city were all going to get incinerated via squid via giant telepathic squid <laughs> which is you know still so crazy to, to to fathom and i'm so happy that it happened in the context of the show but yeah so i i think that we'll go back here. Uh, You don't cast Robert Wisdom, who's such a great actor in this role, unless we're planning on seeing a little bit more of him.
1: Well, Uh, and he's uh, sharing his wisdom, if you will, with a person who comes and buys some newspapers. And he says, like, do you really read all these papers? And she says, yeah, like, it basically indicates, yes, I think we're going to follow this person as well, the, the young woman that walks up here and buys the newspapers. You have to keep in mind, we're seemingly in a world without internet, right? So if we're in a world without internet, how else are you going to get information? This seems to be the kind of behavior where you're combing the headlines for something. You're you're specifically looking for stories about something. So I'm very interested to know what the story is with this young woman that comes up and buys these newspapers. I really doubt that's the last we'll see of her. All right.
0: So sister Knight is going to show up at the scene of the crime as if nothing happened, as if she's finding out for the first time. Uh, And Judd is still hanging there in the morning and she's about to get out of the car. She steals herself and in walks Wade looking glass is going to, is going to step into the car plop down next to her he's famished antonio got anything to eat <laughs>
1: there's some nuts in the glove yeah nuts this, in the glove this is uh, i should be yeah that's uh n- never mind uh, yeah careful yeah, we're going to go right <laughs> past that uh but yeah he, he's famished and he i i you observed earlier that uh, Judd says, can you pull your face down? I love that he just that it's called his face and that he doesn't ever seem to take it off. Later, when he is again eating at home alone, he doesn't take his face off. Right. He just lifts it up so he can eat. You talk about a melding of character and person. I think LG, I think Looking Glass uh, is a person who it's really hard to draw the line uh, between where Looking Glass ends and where whoever's underneath that face begins. He, I don't think, even knows at this point. And And true to form, he begins an interrogation scene almost instantly with Angela here. He does say something I think that is easy to dismiss, but... If he's speaking on behalf of the people who write the lines that he's saying, uh, he says the cavalry would be obvious. And I do wonder if it seems obvious that the cavalry is who strung Judd up. I don't think that's the direction the show is heading in because it is too obvious. So I was happy to hear him acknowledge that right off the jump here, that it's obvious that it's the cavalry. So it's probably someone else.
0: Right. I mean, Watchmen is built on false flag operations, as, right. as they're referred to in this very episode. So for that to be what is involved in Judd's death uh, would make a lot of sense. Got to, of course, be suspicious of the cavalry. And they don't seem like great people, Antonio. They definitely uh, do not. But were they responsible for Judd's death? Maybe not. Maybe we should be looking elsewhere. We shouldn't rule them out, but we should definitely be ruling other people in. Looking Glass says that Judd suffered. Uh, it sounds <laughs> like it was a bad death.
1: Yeah, LG's bedside manner, horrible. Uh, Not I mean, great. Yeah, obviously great. a police officer, and so it all feels very technical to him. But then, Josh, why is he crying under there?
0: That's what he says. She says, you're a cold mother effer, Glass. And he says, then why am I crying under here? And so much of this scene and so much of this character is reminiscent of Rorschach from yes. the comics, who is just who is a cold mother effer, who is somebody who, who wears his mask as his face, does see the world in black and white, and in really, really harsh terms. And Looking Glass seems to to have aspects of that for sure. But Rorschach wouldn't be wouldn't be crying over the death of a, of a comrade, I don't think, anyway. I think that Rorschach would be crying over an injustice, but I think if that's how you want to look at it for a looking glass, that he's crying over an injustice, then that would be in line with Rorschach. But the way that he talks about it, it seems like he's really traumatized. I think it, it would strike me that Judd Crawford was a beloved figure here yes. in Tulsa, probably a legendary figure. It seems that he and Angela are really the, the lone survivors of the White Knight, which we're about to. get a flashback to they must be considered you know in fairly heroic stature within the tulsa pd Uh, so to lose judd and to lose him like this and to lose him at a moment where tensions are so high that this will shatter even a man like looking glass
1: Definitely. Oh, shattering the looking glass—that's seven years bad luck. I know. It is. It is uh, I, I like that they found a way, as you're observing, to have a Rorschach-like character in the show, considering that the cavalry is so odious and so hateful and so horrible, and that video of the cavalry from last week's episode is so terrifying and so upsetting that I, I don't think that Rorschach was only that in the graphic novel. There were some aspects of that with his character, the, the darkness or the things you could lean into, although this clearly amplified and gone in a very strict racial direction with the cavalry. That obviously is not who Rorschach was in in every sense of the palette, uh, but I like that we're getting some of the other shades of Rorschach and, and some of the other parts of the palette with LG, with Looking Glass. I'm, I'm really happy they found a way to have this kind of character in the show, Asking whether Judd was acting strange. Was he drunk? Was he high? Sounds like quite a party. Uh, And then he does get a dig in, we find out in the episode uh, later. He says, your kids? Like when Angela said my kids were there. So he's not exactly uh, the most tactful guy or the nicest guy in the world. Even if he maybe does have some care about him uh, and he is upset about what happened with Judd.
0: So at this point, a moth falls out of the sky. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) The mothman. As happens in the world of you know. Watchmen, yes, uh, the Mothman being uh, a hero from not the prophecies of the of the Mothman, but the Mothman being a hero in the world of the Watchmen back in the Minutemen days, I believe. And clearly, we are seeing that technology is in use here for what are we calling them? The Motharazzi. Motharazzi.
1: Uh, yeah, that's good. I like that.
0: These uh, these Motharazzi who are here <laughs> flying into the crime scene to take some photos and uh, red scare really gives one of these guys the business. Your boy, Red Scare. You love this guy.
1: Yeah, he's great. And it, it's funny because it is almost cartoonish in nature, even though he is bashing the guy's head into the ground. it doesn't. It's just not nearly as violent as what we see later when Hooded Justice bashes someone's head repeatedly. This is almost like he's, he's pie-facing him into the ground and he's just shouting at him like, I'm not a Nazi, I'm a communist. Like, it's really, I, I love Red Scare. It's really great. My and,
0: question for you, Antonio, considering that we know that Matt Often come with their shares of, of uh, falsified identity to, to back up the fiction. Do you think that Red Scare is actually Russian, or do you think that this is a full Russian persona concocted by uh, a, like a Tulsa local <laughs> playing Red Scare? I know you had some questions about the accent. Yeah. The actor who plays Red Scare, Andrew Howard, is Welsh, so that could, that could certainly <laughs> partly explain it. But would it explain things even? Even more if it turned out that Red Scare like grew up in Nixonville or something. Yeah,
1: he's a Tulsa come Cardiff uh, Soviet. (laughs) Yeah, this is what I want. No, this is, uh, I love that. I really hope we do find out. (laughs) Like we see LG at home and we see his home life and it's solitary and it's TV dinner on a tray and it's not taking his face off. Uh, But we also know that Red Scare has got the sugar face. So I would love to know what Red Scare's story is. Uh, Did he escape from Leningrad? Uh, Is he trying to just strike Fear in the hearts of the bad guys by seeming Soviet. Is this an accent? I, I can't wait to find out. Maybe, yeah, I like I like the idea that he might actually be from Wales. Like that's that's my favorite part so far, maybe. That'd be really
0: fun. All right, so they all cut down Judd Crawford, and as Angela's kind of hugging him down, we flash back to the white night when Angela is hugging Cal and he's very excited. He's got a huge present under the Christmas tree. It's Christmas a few years ago. We're we're getting close to midnight. Uh, getting close to being officially time to open that present. Angela does not want him to cheat. She's willing to to do what's necessary to to stop him from opening his Christmas present early. He insists that none of her methods are going to work. She insists that they are. And then suddenly a noise in the house and the white knight is occurring. Rorschach's burst through the door, shotguns in hand. Angela is able to kill one with a knife. The second that she swivels around, she's shot with a shotgun and blasted onto her back on the ground. And when she is closing her eyes and looking up into the face of her assailant, all she sees is the ink blot. All she sees is the Rorschach mask. She's asking for Cal and then she falls asleep and then she wakes up and she's in the hospital and there's Don Johnson. There's Judd Crawford. There's Don
1: Johnson. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Antonio you feels know, like we're we're missing some big information here. It feels. It,
1: like. It definitely feels like that. And I wonder if I if I pass out, will I wake up in the hospital and Don Johnson won't be there? And if you were, <laughs> only
0: hope. Working yeah, only if you
1: were, I'd feel like, uh, well, I I didn't make it. Like this is uh, this is some like international assassin type thing. You're that's in the
0: to good me. place, Antonio. Yeah.
1: Don Johnson is here. Uh, yeah. Old Don Johnson. This uh, yeah, this is it's funny, right? Because Don Johnson is there, and and Angela doesn't say like why. Why am I not dead? Because the fact that the person in the Rorschach mask who came in, the second attacker, if you will, sees the other attacker dead on the floor and doesn't shoot her is obviously something that we have to consider why I'm sure we will find out eventually who this uh, second Rorschach was uh, and why the trigger wasn't pulled uh, was this somebody she had previously known Josh what else happened what happened to Cal in this scene uh, he seemed to get out of this unscathed which also gives me questions about the second attacker I, I just uh, meaning like why didn't why didn't he have a confrontation with Cal I, I don't know ultimately those answers obviously and I'm sure there Show is expecting us to be asking them, but it is interesting to me. Not only did we not see what happened to Cal, but we also don't have Angela saying to to Judd like, "How am I here? I I should have been killed." Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, what did she know, or or why didn't she? Maybe she maybe she blacked out and she doesn't remember anything that happened. Uh, she's asking about Cal. Cal seems to be fine, so I just don't know. I, I don't think we have the full picture here. We're going to get it at some point. We're going to get the twelve o one scene. And and I'm, I'm certainly interested to see specifically what was involved there. Why, why was someone else under that mask? And part of the reason I'm interested is because in this scene with Judd, we, of course, find out that the white night has happened. The media is dubbing it the white night. There were 40 coordinated attacks of all the police force across Too town. shy of
0: the really unlucky number.
1: Too shy of the really unlucky number, uh, the life, the universe, and everything. She does not know the full details. She asks about her partner. Her partner... And uh, her partner's spouse were killed in bed. So that's a thing that happened. Like, they're dead. Their children, uh, Topher and the two girls, who we obviously now know are Angela's children that she has adopted from her partner, they were spared. They, They lived, but many people did not. Everyone has quit the police force. Judd himself, Josh, was attacked, but made it out alive. And you'll forgive me for wondering, now that we know this guy has skeletons in his closet and a perhaps sketchy past like in the graphic novel Watchmen, where these coordinated attacks on superheroes, in the case of Adrian Veidt, were fake. His attack was fake. He hired somebody to make it look like they were attacking him so that all of the attacks would seem to be part of a thing and that the suspicion would be shifted off of him Does that make you wonder, Josh, considering that's in the DNA of the novel, if this is something that happened to Judd? Was Judd actually attacked or was he in on it and he had to make it look like he was attacked so that he would not appear to be part of it?
0: Yeah, to be honest, I'm kind of reversing course on the poor Judd is dead after what we see in his closet, Uh, so, so, you know, not to minimize it, like, I'm now immediately very suspicious of anything with Judd, and yeah, like, I I think about, to toss it back to another one of Damon Lindelof's stories, there is a certain event that takes place in Lost, where it appears that a series of murders have occurred from uh, one person potentially being the perpetrator but we know better and we know who the actual perpetrator is and to, to to create that ruse the perpetrator shoots themselves in the shoulder to make themselves look like uh it's all like oh how could i possibly be involved i was i was victimized here too so it's a very easy it's a flesh wound right like it's very right. easy for for judd here to be like yeah I, I just got out of there barely alive myself so yeah am i suspicious of judd in this moment Absolutely. I wonder how suspicious Angela is. I know we still need details on what happens to her after she's staring into the eyes of the of the Rorschach who shoots her during the white night. Is she intentionally withholding something from Judd? Is it something that she genuinely does not remember? But as far as Judd goes, at this point, given the big reveal at the end of the episode with him, yeah, I am I am highly dubious of his uh potential culpability with uh, with the White Knight.
1: Yeah, it's just crazy that the Rorschach does shoot her, maybe by mistake, maybe on accident, and then doesn't finish her off. She obviously doesn't seem to know Judd well. She knows him as her captain, but they're not on a first-name basis. He says, you know, call me Judd. And she doesn't tell him anything like that, as I pointed out. So the whole thing is shrouded in mystery, and I don't think Judd's role in it should just be accepted as the story that he tells. That said, I do feel like he was being sincere when he said, I let you down. That felt like a very sincere moment to me. So like everything else, as we're talking about, it's probably a lot more complicated than just black and white. It's probably a lot more complicated than some clear answer. There's probably a lot more in play here. His wife apparently works for a very powerful senator who's going to be running for president or has worked for that senator at some point. So there are a lot of these connections here that make you wonder what's above it all. Like, what is going on that we don't know? And so I'm not saying Judd is cavalry. I am saying there's definitely a hover vehicle of some kind. It's a hover vehicle that's above it. That's exactly what I was hinting at. Uh, Yeah, I'm not saying he's cavalry, but I am saying there's something more to this i think
0: okay so she and and judd this is their meet not so cute uh this is uh the beginning of a very important relationship for both of them and angela's reflecting on this in this moment and she's she's obviously having a lot of emotion about it i think if she thinks back on this memory later given what she finds out at the end of the episode maybe thinking a little bit differently but we go back to the present uh they they've gotten judd down the coroners take him away red scare wants to go to nixonville where the cavalry is, and he wants to—he wants to bust some heads until somebody talks. Sister Knight does not agree. Let's stop. Let's take a breath. And, and Fred Scare is incredulous. He uh, says, "You." you don't want to beat the yeah. beat the blank <laughs> out great. of these blanks you love beating the blanks out of these blanks
1: that much uh, and, is indisputable
0: <laughs> a great line from Looking Glass and so yeah. eventually she relents they go to Nixonville it does not go well to the surprise of nobody that this attempt to round everybody up to get them all to go quietly does not go quietly people were throwing bottles soon people were throwing punches Sister Knight ends up uh, watching out for Looking Glass and kicking the kicking the blank out of uh, one of these blanks uh, the way that she loves to do so much so so yeah, she she does that, she gets back into the car and she needs to have yet another moment. She needs to take a breath uh, and that's when she sees what's on her dashboard that she's almost forgotten about. Uh, there's there's peanuts in the glove but there's coffee on the dash uh, and she's got the mug and she needs to do the DNA test.
1: That is something where she, she clearly is reminded of what the what the real thing on her plate is and that she's got a different role in this. She also didn't really want to play a role as you're observing and it was, it was joked about but I think that it underscores the nature of that scene and I do Think that if it hadn't been the the Nixonville crowd, if it hadn't been the people that we've already associated with the cavalry that we see as white supremacists, that we're painting with a broad brush here, I think we would have obviously reacted much differently to scenes of police brutality. Uh, and I do think that's a show that the that's a that's a feeling that the show is looking to engender here. Uh, they don't lean into it, but I I think that those are the questions and the, the points that the show is making in a subtle way especially via someone like Angela, not feeling great about going out uh, and just immediately beating and rounding up people who probably, some of them may know what was going on. They may not, but many of them probably don't. Uh, many of them are probably uneducated. They don't know better. And so to treat them all like the criminals that Red Scare wants to do, it just is not sitting right with Angela. And I think the, the nuance of that in light of the fact that this is a police force and we're in 2019 is not lost on me, at least as a, viewer, um, that she didn't want to participate in that, that she was reluctant. That said, when she did participate in it, boy, did she get violent. Wow, wow,
0: wow. Got into it got into it yeah
1: so she's got that in her as well and that's just a fascinating deep character that we're dealing with here uh and she doesn't even know her history right because she goes to the site where she can get some information about what's going on in 1921 and whether or not there's someone connected to it she knows she can get a dna test done there Uh, she knows do you think josh that she can get it done through skip gates
0: uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. if she <laughs> Treasury uh... <laughs>
1: Secretary Skip Gates.
0: Yes, this is great. This is one of those ways where Watchmen, the TV show interacting, where our history and the alternate history of 2019 aligns. This is really, really funny. Who, who is uh, Henry Louis Gates, a.k.a. Skip Gates, uh, Harvard professor in, in our reality, United States Treasury Secretary in the world of Watchmen?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know him from the, the PBS show that he uh, that he hosts and have kind of been exposed to his work and his criticism and just uh, his writing, just the work that he's done through that PBS show that he does about people. I think it's just called Finding Your Roots. It's about people literally finding their roots. And I know him from there. I don't know him as the Treasury Secretary, but apparently <laughs> a guy like that, a multi-talented guy like that could probably be the Treasury Secretary. I don't know. I think that that's a – you're right. It is really funny. That they can do that. Uh, In the wake of the premiere episode, HBO put out a lot of supplemental materials, which we may get to uh, in the course of this podcast. Uh, But one of the things they just, it's full of little fun details, like, for example, the White House press secretary is Ezra Klein. Right. Uh, or Rupert Murdoch owns the New Frontiersman, the right-wing newspaper that's featured prominently in the series and the graphic novel. So they, they, these are real-life people that they find other ways to bring them into the show. Uh, and I really like that with uh, Henry Louis Gates for sure.
0: Yeah, if you have not sought that out, by the way, the ancillary materials, it's at hbo.com slash watchman. Uh, There's uh, something called PDPedia, questions about the name, but includes like four (laughs) four different like deep dive articles, memos that are based in the world that are very illuminating. We'll draw on some of that as we're going through uh, these podcasts, I'm sure, but you'll definitely want to check all of that out. So Skip Gates is giving a history lesson on the Tulsa massacre. I think uh, yet another reminder that this was a real event, that this is something that is uh, largely unacknowledged and untold, even in the world of Watchmen, certainly in our world, and that President Robert Redford, he offers his sincerest condolences for what everybody has suffered in the Tulsa massacre. And I guess that only direct descendants of the 1921 massacre are eligible to apply for, uh, for benefits from, uh, from the law that is passed in, in relation to this, the Victims of Racial Violence Act, uh, I believe is what it's referred to as at the end of the episode.
1: Yeah, I think that's what it is, and Clearly, that sort of act, this this particular incident, in fact, has been the subject of this kind of discussion, not just in the context of the show, but in the context of real life. And certainly America's just great stain uh, of slavery has been an issue that people have talked about, uh, the need for reparations. I, I'm certainly not the most uh, educated person on that subject, but I, I know that it is a very significant study and that, that poverty that was created as a result of people never being equal it uh, was never correct. And certainly in this particular incident, which targeted wealth, uh, which specifically targeted people uh, who had succeeded and who had built up uh, property and and wealth specifically, uh, to have that taken away from them, uh, it makes sense that in the course of an a alternate universe or an alternate reality, uh, someone would want to find some way to repair that breach. And that's certainly what this represents. Uh, and obviously, there are people who are not happy about that. We see the protesters outside. We've seen in both episodes now now people derisively talking about what they call red uh, reparations from Robert Redford's government, seemingly, and this is a very clear representation of it. And I think it's uh, I th- like I said, it's an issue that that it needs to be talked about uh, in the context of our real world. So I'm not shocked at all that uh, a show that gets an opportunity to tell a slightly different version of our world uh, would stick their neck out, especially when they're talking about these subjects uh, and have that. It also reminded me a little bit, Josh, of Miracle Texas from The Leftovers, uh, just this kind of like a, a center here. With where things are happening in the background and you're not exactly sure everything that's happening. There's holograms. We see just a lot of people tapping into things and seemingly they have cataloged everybody that would have been affected by that massacre and are looking to uh, find ways to bring them, to make them whole again. And I don't know that Angela had an inkling that Will Reeves would have been connected to that. I certainly didn't seem that way to me. I think she just knew she could get a DNA test done there.
0: That's, that's my feeling as well uh, yeah. and so she, she brings the DNA to be processed here I think that she knows that she could do this here and have it a little bit more off the record than bringing it in because whatever is going on I think she feels is pretty charged and I think she wants to to do her private diligence before uh, and I think if she has trust issues in Tulsa you know being like now the lone right. survivor of the white knight right uh, is, the, is the indication that we have about her anyway at this point that you know if she wants to if, she, if she's just lost the one man on the fourth. That she fully trusts that she may want to be doing this independently. So she's going to go home and find a wild beaver on her porch. A Jim Beaver <laughs> has arrived.
1: Uh, Jim Beaver has arrived. This is great. I love Jim Beaver. I don't like Jim Beaver, racist Jim Beaver. That's not great. Not a great look, but it's not surprising to see him in a similar role as we've seen, uh, Josh, many of the shows that we've podcasted about in the past together on other on other places. Jim Beaver has shown up uh, and I'm very happy to see him here. Great actor. Not the kind of guy I think you cast just for one scene. Do you think we're going to see this guy again? hundred percent.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Jim Beaver, great on Deadwood, Justified, Breaking Bad, you name it. Uh, he's he's a phenomenal actor. Uh, and for him to just be cast here as kind of like angry grandpa, uh, you know, because we get some more details in this episode of the children of the A-bars that Topher and Rosie and Emma seem to be the the children who are left behind by uh, Angela's old partner who was killed, Doyle. R.I.P. Doyle, the fanfic, breaks your heart to think about which Doyle this could be. But, but <laughs> I, I, Tulsa Nine-Nine, I think, is a different show. Yeah. But yeah, so he's, he's their grandfather, we assume, and he's here for his, uh, his daily visit. He's not being allowed in, clearly because Cal knows that this is a very sensitive day, uh, that things are, that are, uh, are a little more intense today than usual. So she wants him to take a rain check. He says, I'll take a real check. And he, he leaves her with a, a snide comment about the Redfordations.
1: Yeah, as he, well. he doesn't really want to visit these kids. He just, I mean, he's just there to stick the knife in and uh, he's happy to take some money and walk away. Uh, so, this is not a great guy. Like you said, we'll probably see him again. Can we call him Chekhov's Beaver?
0: I <laughs> think Chekhov's beaver definitely <laughs> yeah. fits.
1: Yeah, you don't mount a beaver on the wall. Uh, well, there's a taxidermist in the first step in the first act, and then not have it uh, become Jim Beaver in the third act or something. I don't know.
0: I think that's close to the same.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, and then Cal is inside. You said Cal doesn't want to deal with it. He's playing around with the kids, the costumes. Cal is a, a white sheet ghost. We've got uh, we've got a pirate, and we have an owl. I get another owl in connection to the night owl. So I mean, we that seems is it even Halloween? Is that what's ha-
0: I think that they're just playing around. Yeah, just just costume Uh, dress up. Pirates are really popular in the world of Watchmen, as we have said. Owls as well certainly have a certain level of notoriety in the world of Watchmen. I'm not so sure about the ghosts, but it seems like the sheets have some... Powerful imagery uh, in great. the context yeah. of HBO's Watchmen.
1: Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't know that there's any connection to Cal. Uh, I hope not. Cal did seemingly disappear from the incident with the shooting, but uh, whether or not there's some greater story, the only reason I mention it is his character seems so nice and so subservient and so willing to just let uh, Angela run the house, uh, which is great. And it does seem to serve them well. Uh, I would certainly want Angela running my house, but it just seems right now like this is a. this is a nice guy and a nice guy only and I do wonder if there's some more layers there I doubt it but it is something that the the sheet triggered me because it triggers me later in the episode really just in a couple of scenes here
0: So Angela and Cal are gonna talk about what's going on with the Judd situation with the old man. So clearly Angela has filled Cal in on everything. Must have been a very uh, elaborate uh, message to send across the pager. (laughs) Since
1: we know they they, don't have cell phones, that's what I was wondering about. Like how you said he knows it's a sensitive night, and I'm like, does he? Like I I do wonder. Like how they're talking about the old man. Yeah. I do wonder how a lot of this communication goes on.
0: Yeah, so she says he he says he's Dr. Manhattan. He says he can't be Dr. Manhattan. He can't be human. He's on Mars. So that's the conventional wisdom. Enough people are saying it that it can't be fully
1: true. Exactly.
0: Uh, <laughs> there's something up with Doctor Manhattan for sure. Yeah. Uh, but Cal wants to know if we'll talk about safe. what's
1: up with Doctor Manhattan in a couple yeah, scenes. Yeah. Well,
0: so what's what's down with Doctor Manhattan? Yes. But yeah, Cal is uh, asking if we're safe, and she insists that she would tell them. Uh, she would say if they were not. Uh, but he suspects that things are not as great. As they appear. Meanwhile, in Topher's room, he's playing with like these Manhattan magnets, uh, the Manhattan blocks, whatever it is—a Manhattan project, if you will. (laughs) Nice. As he's building this castle, and Angela sits him down and gives him the truth, pretty severely. uh, So there are people in this world who believe that things are fair and good, that it's all lollipops and rainbows. But I remember what happened to my parents. You remember what happened to yours. The world is black and white not lollipops and rainbows. And she goes straight from that into saying, Uncle Judd is dead.
1: Uncle Judd is dead, yeah.
0: Or Judd is dead.
1: What happened to her parents? We don't know. Marcus Abar, as I think her father was referenced in the phone call from Will at the end of last episode, but we don't really know what happened to her parents. We find out later in the episode, uh, just in, mentioned in passing, like your your father didn't tell you about me, Will says, but we don't know what happened to her parents. It doesn't sound like it's good. And it does sound like it might be similar to what happened to Topher's parents uh, because she's making herself seem like Topher. Like, you know, we know you and I have experienced the same thing is sort of what she's getting at. So we're going to find out, I'm sure, what happened to her parents. This is brought up here in passing. Uh, We'll fill in that blank later. Speaking of filling in blanks later, I don't know if there's anything to the fact that Topher... Is building a castle much like the one we see the lord of the manor building you know living in uh in the age what we assume are the adrian veit scenes but that is uh it's not lost on me that the castle looks similar because i thought at first it looked like downton abbey and then i was like well maybe maybe <laughs> right. it's not i don't think downton abbey exists in the watchman universe they have different tv shows uh which we're which we're just going to talk about here but the yeah the castle did uh, stand out to me a little bit here
0: he smashes the castle and immediately is like can i watch tv now and he's going to saddle up next to cal and he's going to be watching american hero story on tv even though the warning on television is very explicit if you are not of age do not watch this show even with a guardian right. uh but toper's had a hard day so they're gonna they're gonna let him watch it especially if they know that he can handle it everybody seems to be watching it as you observed earlier looking glass is watching he's got a tv dinner and he still has his face on so he still has the mask on we see the seventh cavalry they are watching it the background as they're building a bomb vest
1: it sure looks like it
0: sure looks like it yeah Uh, and so then we get to see uh we get to we get to close in on the tv and we get to spend some time in the world of american hero story uh and of course this is a great nod to the the story within a story structure of the Watchmen graphic novel where tales from the black freighter this pirate comic book plays out within the context of the comic book Watchmen. here we are getting a tv show within the tv show and it seems to be the origin story of Hooded Justice, who's the who's the mask who is credited as the first superhero in the superhero craze, is the inspiration, uh, a founding member of the Minutemen in the comics. And there's uh, some questions about who Hooded Justice actually is, a secret identity that remains unconfirmed. But there are a lot of hot theories about it. There is this book called Under the Hood that is written by Hollis Mason, the original Night Owl within the universe of Watchmen that has some speculation on the subject. And the American Hero Story show that we see seems to play with that right away. Uh, mm. This man who's dead, this strong man, Rolf Mueller. The last name, which should already be familiar within the context of this episode, Fräulein Mueller, who is called upon to type on the typewriter in the, in the World War I sequence at the very start of the episode. But you hear Hooded Justice like monologuing over it and saying, like, everybody thinks I'm dead. It's the last photo they'll ever take of me, except it's not me. I'm not ready to tell you who I am, because if I did, you wouldn't watch until the end. Great meta commentary. I mean, you could just tell us, right? We'll still watch.
1: Yeah, I'll, I will definitely still watch. Uh, although, man violence, some ultraviolence in this Hooded Justice show. No wonder there were such warnings. Also in the warning, did it say, I, I think it said, American Hero Story uh, does not reflect the views of the government? And I, I'm like, what is the government doing uh, giving a warning on what seems to be a commercial television program? So uh, that is something that, that caught my ear as something that was in the world of Watchmen this show. It's also rated X, not surprisingly that it's rated X. We see Rolf Mueller there in the water. He's got a shoe off on this body. Uh, I think it's the same shoe that Judd has off uh, hanging in the tree. I don't know the significance of that, but there's definitely some connective shoeless tissue there. Speaking of tissue, these are not soft tissue injuries that Hooded Justice inflicts on these poor people. Uh, I shouldn't say poor. They are criminals in the scene. Hooded Justice, a little OTT though
0: he like stabs a guy with glass then he stabs him with a knife then he uses him as a human shield he breaks a dude's arm with his knee he smashes another man's face into the counter like you said the pie gag over and over and over again huckleberry jam everywhere and then he crushes his head with the cash register it's a very, bit much very very OTT it's a bit much uh, it is a lot it's a lot it's reminiscent visually yes. of uh, of the Watchmen film directed by Zack Snyder who I know is Somebody that Damon Lindelof respects a lot as a colleague, so I don't think that this is like a full-on uh, shot across the bow at the Watchmen movie, which is uh, celebrated by some, not celebrated universally. And Zack Snyder is often a, a, a filmmaker who takes a lot of heat for uh, for flourish over substance. But I think at the very least, you know, is it maybe a shot across the bow? Maybe you know, it's certainly a possibility. But what I like about it is it's certainly like an acknowledgement of the Watchmen movie's place in the canon. You know, like. The really over the top, very, very flourishy, very hyper violent adaptation. Slow mo. Yes. Yeah, it's great. Yeah.
1: Very yeah. funny. And uh, it is, there's lettuce in the stock boy's hand. Like the, the connective tissue, like you say, or like you're saying, to the Snyder work, but also to just what we've seen in the show so far is there. So it's a very fun way, I think, to have a story within a story, a play within a play, if you will. We're going to get more of that in this episode in a different, in a different way, but maybe not any less violent <laughs> or certainly not any less affecting. Uh, but in Hooded Justice's case, what does Hooded Justice say here, Josh? I know you've got this down. This was interesting to me. Hooded of Justice's monologue. The, the show is, this show, American Hero Story, is interested in telling a different version of the Hooded Justice tale than I think we, we, what the assumed story was from Under the Hood or from the Watchmen graphic novel, where it was assumed maybe uh, that Rolf Mueller was Hooded Justice because he disappeared around the same time that Hooded Justice stopped. But the show seems to be saying, no, Hooded Justice was somebody else.
0: Right. What he says, his monologue is voiced over as Angela is showing up at Judd Crawford's house to be with Jane, his wife, played by Francis Fisher, the great Francis Fisher. He he says this. He says, Who am I? Every time I looked in the mirror, I saw a stranger staring back at me. And he was very, very angry. What could I do with all this anger? Hot, vibrating electricity with no place to ground it. If he couldn't release his rage, then maybe I could help him hide it. I never felt comfortable in my own skin, so I made a new one. And when I slipped it on, he and I became one. His anger became mine, as did his thirst for justice. So who am I? If I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be wearing an effing mask.
1: Well, what's great about that is that it's repeatedly asking the "Who am I?" question, and if we were going to answer it only the Jean Valjean of it all, the Jean Valjean, yes, exactly. Is it Russell Crowe under there?
0: You think? No, Um, no, no, it's Hugh Jackman.
1: Yeah, it's Hugh Jackman. Sorry, my mistake, my mistake. I didn't. You didn't say Joe Bear. I I apologize.
0: Zavare, yeah. Yes.
1: Uh, No. What I would say is, if we're going to answer that question in the context of our show. Timeline-wise, Hooded Justice seems to be beginning work in 1938. The character that we know who would be age-appropriate is Will Reeves. And so if you listen to that monologue from the Will Reeves perspective about maybe never feeling comfortable in his own skin, you can imagine that might be what a boy who had been a victim of the the Tulsa massacre would say uh, and would feel. Whether or not that means he became Hooded Justice or if that's too obvious, and we're going to get some other clarity from more historic backstories, I don't know. But I think that's something that people probably will be tracking very closely uh, as we proceed through these episodes at this point, because it makes a little sense. Uh, I mean, Will Reeves himself is wearing a hooded jacket, uh, and he's wearing the same red as Hooded Justice, or similar, in, in in the context of the episodes. So... Is he hooded justice? Is that the story the show's going to tell us? TBD. But it's certainly something that popped to me when you're looking at what age we know from 1938. Age appropriate-wise, it would be Will Reeves. And it would fit, I think, with him maybe being hero obsessed we see the young boy watching the Bass Reeves segment at the beginning of the show I don't think it's an accident that we see black and white horses or that we have a story that seems to be saying that you know a sheriff or a a police officer could be bad uh, which is the story that was being told in that silent film at the beginning and so if that's linked up then it makes sense that maybe a young boy who was obsessed with heroes might want to become a hero himself but might feel the need to cover his face to some extent so TBD but definitely something I think we should track going forward.
0: So Angela shows up at the house. This is where we're going to meet not great Bob. Joe Keene uh, <laughs> is, is in the house. James James Wolk, Wolk Senator in yes. the house. Joe Keene, who in the newspapers uh, that you see in the newspaper scene, says that he is uh, expected to announce that he is running for president. We know that Robert Redford is not going to be uh, running for re-election, thus ending the reign that he has held since the 1990s. Uh, enjoy your retirement, Robert Redford. And Joe Keene... At the very least, uh, a descendant of Senator Keene from the Watchman graphic novel, The Keene Act, which outlaws vigilanteism. So this is somebody with some historical significance, not to mention just great hair and a fantastic smile.
1: Yes, the Lone Star of the, ha, the show right, right now, yes. for sure. Yeah, he's, he's great. He, he, he has this sort of senator-like quality to him. You want to cast a handsome man uh, or a handsome person, I guess you could cast a beautiful woman or you could cast a handsome man or you could cast whoever you wanted, but I think he's going to seem a little slimy. It just already feels that way. So this is the guy you cast when you want like this uh, this bright young scion of some political family, like a Kennedy-esque thing. This is the guy that you call from Central Casting. So it, it makes total sense that's who he is, because that's, I, th- I think, what the role is going to mean, th- that the role is meant to be. We also find out, as you pointed out, that uh, that Judd's wife uh, had previously worked uh, for or maybe still does, according to Senator Keene. Uh, the language isn't great there. So I, I don't know uh, if Jane is, is going to still be working for Senator Keene now, or if there's more to the Jane story, but definitely uh, marking that. Because, look, things are never as they seem and we find that out with Angela here. Angela faints to the ground as though she's overwhelmed with it all. Right. Yeah, it, Jane takes her upstairs to the bedroom to to relax. It seems like, uh, and when she relaxes, as soon as Jane leaves the room, Angela's eyes snap open, and it was a faint. It was a faint, faint. It was a fake faint. She is ready uh, to investigate. And are those night owl goggles she has?
0: Yeah, it seems so Night Owl from the comic book has all sorts of sweet gadgets. If Rorschach is really kind of like the like the detective, like the take no prisoners form of Batman, then Night Owl was the one with all the gadgetry and the secret layer and and all of that. And the two of them worked in close concert with one another. So they were kind of like a two-headed Batman. The ancillary material that we have referred to already, the PDPedia stuff that you can find on HBO.com, gives us a little bit of information as to what's going on with Night Owl in the world of Watchmen. Uh, it says that Dan Dreeberg, who is the man who is uh, the second Night Owl and the Night Owl we know best as Watchmen fans, was apprehended in the mid-1990s, I think 1995, alongside Laurie Blake, who is uh, the former Silk Spectre, then going by the name The Comedienne in honor of her father, I suppose. Uh, we know that Jean Smart is going to be playing Laurie Blake. She should be coming up here. Any minute now. So the fact that Dan Dreeberg and uh, Lori Blake were operating from 1985 to 1995, at least before getting apprehended, that's a solid run for those two. Good decade of vigilantism. And what the story is going to be from there, I'm sure we will find out on the show. But in the context of, uh, of of those ancillary materials, we know that Dan Greenberg is, is certainly, he's been apprehended by the government. David Lindelof has said in a separate interview with IGN that the government has appropriated Night Owl's technology, hence why we're seeing the Owl ship in the first episode, and hence why we are seeing here Angela Abar has access to these goggles, these like, you know, super amazing X ray type goggles that Night Owl used in the ground novel, it would appear that his technology has been uh, boosted far and wide, wherever he is potentially not being the beneficiary of this material anymore
1: they're very useful unless you want to find true skeletons in someone's closet. And I guess then they're very useful as well, but you might not like what you find. The camera's moving around the room with Angela. It's been a couple times now I feel like the camera has lingered on that particular picture of Judd in his home. I think, I don't know if it's with an older man or what that is, but I'm I'm certainly interested in the way the camera has, has lingered on that picture. But that doesn't seem to be the secret that we're interested in in this scene. Uh, the secret is unfortunately a full clan robe with a police badge on it, Josh. We are not surprised at all, obviously, that there would be white supremacists in the police force. There are white supremacists literally in every profession in the country, but it is very shocking and upsetting to see it just, it looks like a person and it's very upsetting to see it in the scene
0: later on in the episode when angela comes back to the bakery and she's gonna you know be pressing will like did you put that in there for me to find because it was really easy to find are you trying to like mess with me unfortunately like uh, hard to imagine like this as will outlines he's like i'm in a wheelchair was it on the second floor that'd be pretty hard for me to get into Uh, he's also kind of like saying like the skeletons of the closet wasn't the clue (laughs) it's also is also what he says he's like that wasn't really i didn't mean it literally so maybe we should be reading more closely at the other things that he said but yeah i mean the the reasons for him having it what does it represent for him is he in league with 7k did they kill one of their own all of these questions are worth asking, and it certainly makes you look back at uh, a character who, after one episode, and this was the power of Don Johnson's performance, you were so sad to see him go. Yes. Uh, you were you were devastated to lose Judd by the end of the first hour of Watchmen, and now seeing a, a clan robe in his closet, it's it's like your first reaction is horror. Your second reaction is like, well, good riddance, and then your third reaction is like, so what's the story? And I'm Looking forward to finding. Out feels like a weird way to turn that phrase, but I'm very interested now. And Angela very clearly is really upset uh, and she just storms right out of the house, at which point we linger on a piece of artwork that is hanging on the wall at the late Judd Crawford's home. And this is a, a painting that uh, has, uh, I guess, a couple of different names to it. The, what I found on the Smithsonian, Comanche Feats of Horsemanship, is what I saw, Antonio.
1: Yeah, and I saw on, I think, the artist's own website uh, or website dedicated to the artist, the actual full title in a different form, Comanche Feats of Martial Horsemanship. So regardless of what it is, this is definitely the shout out to the title, of the episode and it's painted by a painter who was famous I think uh, as, as we talked about previously off air we talked about how this, this painter was apparently famous for painting Native Americans uh, in some people's eyes uh, they were seeing for the first time through these paintings and whether or not he played up a lot of what was going on or not I think seems to be in discussion here but the actual martial feats of horsemanship here that are being displayed uh, are what were described as the Comanches riding on the side of their saddles, sliding off their saddles and riding so that their horse was essentially a shield and still being able to use weapons uh, while they were riding down low in the saddles like that this particular painting also has a white horse uh, and dark horses in them like we saw in the uh, silent film at the beginning of the first episode so the image reconnects do you find any other connections to the the title of the episode or what we see in the episode overall
0: yeah. And George Catlin is the name of the artist. If you want to look into it any deeper. Yeah, I think the, the move. It, I mean, you, you can see it in the painting of, of this soldier who is just like uh, throwing himself down to the side of the horse and the motion that it that really translates from the painting, that that is a horse in motion as he is you know gripping him from the side and he is able to to duck behind him. It makes you wonder, like, what was Judd hiding behind you know, what was what was the horse for Judd? How has he been shooting, potentially hiding behind something? Uh, certainly, this is going to transition us to the Lord of the Manor, and we're going to see Jeremy Irons's character on horseback. And if he's who he seems to be, then, you know, there he's been riding behind. Uh, he's been using a very different animal as a shield for the last little while. So I think that that feat of horsemanship, the very impressive skill of being able to hide behind something while still slinging arrows is something that is uh, a pretty natural metaphor within the world of Watchmen
1: for sure and this is a, this is a guy as we transition to the lord of the manor whether he's Ozymandias or whether he's Adrian Veidt or whether he's just <laughs> a crazy old man. Uh, clearly, he is up to something. That there are feats, that are great feats of something. His uh, he's horse grow- is
0: named Becephalus. Becephalus yes. uh, associated with Alexander the Great. Ozymandias obsessed with Alexander the Great. So there's there's other Alexander the Great references here. The Gordian knot. The
1: Gordian uh, knot of it all, right? Yeah. So yeah.
0: is he is he Ozymandias or is he Gordian knot?
1: I don't know. He's growing tomatoes on a tree. Adrian Veidt, known for scientific advance and doing things like that. So it is very much in character that he'd be doing something crazy like this. We don't know where he is. Uh, Adrian Veidt lived in Antarctica and had uh, this, this weird like bubble that he lived in that he exposed and Karnak, he, yeah. he, he he disappeared from Karnak, right? He has gone from there. One of the supplementary materials is an obituary, a write-up of uh, everything that uh, after Veidt was declared dead. What we know or what is popular mythology about Veidt, what people believe about him, his role in the world. Uh, And so he is missing, presumed dead, like we talked about on last episode. And again, like we talked about on last episode, it is not clear exactly what time these scenes are taking place in the context of the story we're watching in Oklahoma. Are these scenes before it? Are they after it? Are they occurring at the same time? How much time is passing? Because what we see uh, as we go inside the manor here is we see the same cake as we saw in the first episode, but this time there are two candles on it. Uh, We see the same servants, but this time they have lab coats on and we hear about the same play that we only heard briefly mentioned and we saw him working on in the first episode. It is now being staged and seemingly being staged nightly. At least I don't think this was the first staging of the play that we see in this episode.
0: I don't know. Hard hard to say. Either way, it seemed like it was the one that was really riveting for Jeremy Irons. Uh, Yes. (laughs) He seemed seemed gripped. He was very into it, right. Yeah. He, you know, before it. he uh, he blows out the candle he's he's done with the cake he wants everybody to get into, into place he asks Miss Crookshanks when is a lie not a lie the answer is when it's acting he wants real tears tonight and uh, Mr. Phillips is going to say I require the watch that I gifted you as a prop and Jeremy irons the lord of the manor reaches in grabs the clock puts it in Mr. Phillips' hand and says has it ever occurred to you Mr. Phillips that you are the prop I don't know why I turned him into Sean Connery but there we go <laughs> And then he says oh, all man. right dimwits on with the
1: show <laughs> so great and then we get the show the show is a loose stylized played up retelling of the dr manhattan origin story directly from the graphic novel as we I, know
0: it yes i have i have a story about this up at thr.com Watchmen right now if you want to read more some great quotes from the people involved in the scene watching this antonio as somebody who has never experienced watchmen before must have been so confusing. Yes, uh, but watching this as somebody who has experienced Watchmen before and has experienced it recently, you know, rereading the graphic novel again very recently, I was so delighted with the ways in which this is close, the ways in which it is highfalutin. But like the, the you know, this is Janie, this is this is John Osterman's original girlfriend. That they they had this moment. They were drinking beers. He left the thing back at the intrinsic field generator, uh, which is a line he stumbles over in a really. <laughs> great way I've, i i interviewed tom Myson about this and he talked about how much fun it was to discuss the idea of like what is bad acting like how do you do bad acting well uh and like how do you perform uh he said as opposed to when what he tries to do which is good acting badly which i think he is giving himself <laughs> too much flack he did a fantastic job here but he goes into the field generator and Janie comes back uh, and she's saying i can't bear to watch i can't possibly see this that's very true to the account of it according to Dr. Manhattan in the graphic novel. In so many ways, this uh, this is so fantastic. If you go back and you read the Dr. Manhattan chapter from Watchmen, this plays phenomenally well. But I'm sure it's really fun to watch, even if that's not stuff that's immediately on your radar.
1: I, I can't imagine, right? Because not only are we getting a literal burning alive of a human or probably not a human as the case may be but something very human like we're getting also uh, all of Dr. Manhattan here directly from the graphic novel a hilarious shout out we're getting not just uh, the face of Dr. Manhattan we're getting lower Manhattan here
0: lower Manhattan is in the house for sure yes full frontal Dr. Manhattan as is Dr. Manhattan's want in the comic book uh, as Dave Gibbons illustrates him often Dr. Manhattan shameless lets it all hang out the anti Tobias Funke uh, is Dr. Manhattan. He has no problems letting everybody know what he's working with. Uh, and so for, for the this way is the that scene where
1: he blew himself.
0: Yes, the way that it, the way that it's filmed with his feet lowering into frame, and then it is the full frontal shot, is really designed to elicit, I'm sure, gasps, which is where they're at, but the laughs as well, especially from people who who know the source material pretty well. I was dying. I was laughing so so hard. Yeah. Was, at this point, I was like, man you guys are really going for it. Like, I know that this isn't like a, a straight adaptation of Watchmen, nor is this a straight adaptation of the Dr. Manhattan origin story, but the ways that you are honoring the source material, it's a shame that Alan Moore will never give this a shot. Uh, Cause I, I have a hard time imagining not being at least a little bit tickled with the fidelity that they are. They're creating this show <laughs> with to the
1: point, right down to the lower Manhattan,
0: right down to the lower Manhattan, but even more seriously, the, the final line of the watchmaker's son, where Janie says, Oh, John is this the end and he says nothing ends Janie and the Lord of the Manor repeats the line nothing Nothing ever ever ends ends," which is the final thing that Dr. Manhattan ever says to Ozymandias in the graphic novel just to advance that narrative further and uh, the Lord of the Manor Antonio he loves it as much as we do yeah, he, his reaction is great. Fantastic. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo. Yes, it's he's transcendent. so transcendent.
1: He's so pleased. I mean, he wrote the play. He theoretically created the people that are in the play. He blew up the little TNT box with such (laughs) glee. I don't know what is going on with his obsession with Dr. Manhattan. I don't know where Dr. Manhattan is, but he is living rent-free in the Lord of the Manor in his head. And it's just fantastic to see. What is not fantastic to see, however, is the burned-up body of Mr. Phillips. It's just That was not a special effect. He really got burned. That was not acting. He was Screaming as he burned to death? That was
0: real. It was real. And all of these people who are wearing hoods, they remove their hoods, and it's just like an army of Phillipses and Crookshankses. So are these robots? Are they clones? Are they all just uh twins? Just like uh like hunch tuplets. I don't know what you would call a number of that size.
1: Yeah clones make some sense right because maybe if he's cloning them from an individual source they just get progressively dumber uh <laughs> right. like in multiplicity like the fourth michael keaton hi steve uh, yeah <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna say the other lines but yeah that is uh exactly like that that's probably where we're at here copy of a copy of a copy of a copy i think that's good robots could also work maybe it's a copy of a robot which could be even worse right uh but yeah we're we're, we're definitely phillips and crookshanking our way through this but one of them is named montrose although not, not anymore. anymore no <laughs> oh, Montrose is the new Mr. Phillips. Yeah, that's great. The new Mr. Phillips. Oh, uh, so it, I guess is, that means next time they perform the play, he's going to get burned up.
0: I, I guess so, which is bad news, but he seems to take the job with, uh, he, he accepts it gladly. Uh, yeah. So the dimwits uh, comment certainly <laughs> certainly resonates a little <laughs> bit more now. But it, I mean, it's horrible. It's terrifying. Uh, I think we do get real tears from Miss Crookshanks in that moment, but it is also very funny. And it also seems to be very inspirational for the Lord of the Manor. When uh, he, he, he prized the, the watch from poor Mr. Phillips is uh cold dead hands and uh miss crookshanks asks has it stopped master and he says no miss crookshanks it's only just begun so whatever is coming next this man is uh he's feeling he's feeling it uh one of my favorite scenes of twenty nineteen yeah so great (laughs) let alone on Watchmen it was just marvelous absolutely marvelous transcendent as (laughs) as well it,
1: it is transcendent uh and it's the sort of thing that if it were on any other TV show would be one of the most ridiculous shows, probably of the series. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. is it possible, Josh, considering what's next, that this isn't even the most ridiculous scene in the episode?
0: Maybe. I mean, there's d- just a lot of stuff where it's like, okay. And then a hovercraft shows up and drops a gigantic magnet down and picks up the car and leaves. Like, right. I mean, like these are things that like you just like y- you dream about and then you put them into reality. It's very, very funny. Uh, yeah. But but we leave the we leave the manor and we go back to to Milk and Hanoi. This is where Angela is going to corner Will. Will has apparently just been hanging out. He went out, he got eggs, he's making eggs
1: making eggs he's the egg man maybe he i don't know why he 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 loves eggs i don't know how he got out either that does not seem to be a thing that angela is very taken aback by i certainly am Uh, he let himself out of handcuffs and then came back because they had some talking to do he also didn't literally mean the skeletons in the closet didn't literally mean in the closet like we talked about he talks about how he can't go upstairs and then he says uh the key line here well if it's any consolation i would have been rescued anyway i've got friends in high places
0: and indeed he does as we'll see in just a moment. But before we see that, his timer goes off. He has, a, he has a clock that's about to go. And as soon as it goes off, Angela gets a phone call, finds out that Will, the name that she's identified as, is eligible for the Victims of Racial Violence Act. Uh, she is a beneficiary and also has two relatives that are known in the database. Uh, and if you say the names, we can look into that and, and let you know. So Angela on the hunch, it's like she's feeling the force. It's like she's a psychic, Antonio, and she knows. Oh, my uh, gosh.
1: Psychic nuns are back. You can't back. You, you can't put this in the world and have it not pay off. Now I'm scared. Psychic
0: sister nun. she says, Angela Abar into the phone, and the phone spits back out that Angela Abar is Will's granddaughter. Uh, and it's as if Will knows exactly what she has just learned. Uh, and he says, so your parents didn't tell you anything about me. And he reveals why he's here. He says, I wanted to meet you, and I wanted to show you where you come from.
1: And TBD, right? Because he's not around to do that by the end of the episode. <laughs> no, he's uh, in a but, hovercraft. But,
0: but he's but in a vehicle do. that is being magnetized away via some sort of flying object. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know. that the, I want to show you where you come from. That's the line that makes uh, Angela want to take him in for real and arrest him for real. And so she goes to do that. She starts to put him in the car. He's looking up into the sky uh, as she is doing that, and it's not clear why. Uh, and then it immediately becomes clear why his friends in high places. Unbelievable.
0: Unbelievable! Yeah, And Eggman by the Beastie Boys kicks in. <laughs> just, just <laughs> a great needle drop. There have been some really amazing needle drops on Lindelof shows over the course of uh, the years, but certainly in the HBO era uh, and the leftovers and now Watchmen. Great to see that that's intact. Going to Eggman by Beastie Boys is just such a—it's just a great smash to credits uh, yeah. for a, a really exciting second week of Watchmen.
1: Definitely. Uh, and just like I said, the show that with that end scene and certainly the, the end scene from the previous week, I think it's just making you wonder, like, where the hell are we going? What is this show doing? And it's doing a lot. It's doing it really well. It's entertaining the hell out of me. And we can go, we can smash cut from lower Manhattan to uh, hovercraft with a, with a car strength magnet and a 105-year-old man uh, being lifted away. That's Watchmen. That's Damon Lindelof. That's uh, just fantastic. I'm, I'm so happy to have this show, and I'm, and I'm just thrilled that it's not just existing as I said earlier on those levels, that it is actually uh, in its own way commenting on a lot of what's going on and using the medium of comic books to tell, I think, a different story or a much really in the way that's yeah, yeah. a really important story. And I think in the way that Watchmen was interested in doing. Uh, and so, I just the, the the graphic novel, and I think that I just that's a really uh, it's it's something that is just as worthwhile as all the bonkers stuff that's happening, probably more worthwhile. in in another show, but maybe even more worthwhile in this show because of all the crazy stuff that's happening, right? It's it's the sort of thing that's maybe going to be a little more popular. Maybe more people are going to to, to access this and as a result, more conversation will happen around these issues and I think that's great. Uh, so just a- across the board, Watchmen is doing really really good work for me.
0: Yeah, I think you and I are very, very satisfied with it so far. Any quick hits before we close out? One that I know we glossed over quickly. We had mentioned it kind of loosely Loosely, is in that American hero story sequence, there is, uh, before the big, uh, the robbery fight scene, the Zack Snyder-inspired scene, there is a boy who is, uh, who is huckstering papers that say alien invasion is a hoax, which is clearly a war of the worlds shout-out, and also a thinly veiled shout-out to uh, the, the squidening uh, that, yes. that Ozymandias cooked up being a hoax as well
1: yeah definitely and I, I highly recommend uh, the PDP of it all like the PDPedia people read the supplemental materials uh, that HBO is putting out uh, after these episodes last week's uh, episode create. there's only four of them linked last week but there's a lot of material there I'm sure that as we go on throughout the season there's going to be more value uh, that we can tap into and we can talk about here some of the, the really funny stuff throughout this uh, like we talked about the White House press secretary was Ezra Klein that's mentioned there the, uh, the Surgeon General Josh is Dr. Oz. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Dr. Yeah. Oz, Surgeon General, listen, it's not a it's not a utopia we're dealing with here in the world of Watchmen, is it?
1: No no, but what's interesting of course is that the graphic novel had a lot of its own supplemental material that wasn't part of the main story. That was presented between the chapters of the graphic novel, uh, and it did fill in a lot of the backstory. Uh whether it was the story of heroes from the early 30s to the 40s, 50s and 60s to uh information about the characters that we were reading about, uh, and seeing in the main course of the graphic novel. So it seems like that tradition will continue to be the case as well uh, with the supplemental stuff from HBO. So there's definitely some other good stuff there that I would recommend people check out if they're interested in that sort of thing. For example, I know we talked about last week that it was, they were celebrating the Lord of the Manor's quote anniversary. Well, there is an anniversary with the Lord of the Manor mentioned in the supplemental material. Uh, It's that he, the last time he was seen in public, he was accepting an award in Kenya uh, for something that on the anniversary of something he did in 1967, he stopped a right-wing rogue bio-military plot to detonate a biological weapon in Kenya, and he was b- receiving an award for that. It was on the anniversary of that event. So I'm like, hmm, Ozymandias, an anniversary mentioned here, mentioned on the show. I wonder what the anniversary could be, but there's that sort of thing that's happening in these supplemental materials as well. Very uh, very important to check out. Oh, one final thing, Josh. Last week, there was the, the watch battery situation and why the cavalry might be using watch batteries, something that becomes very clear from the supplemental materials from last week's episode is that one of the reasons, the main reason that society does not seem to have evolved much technologically is people are very afraid of technology because people were very afraid of Dr. Manhattan. And that was all part of the plot from the graphic novel, right?
0: yeah absolutely yeah i mean there's a there's a plot that's concocted as part of the the squiddening that uh, Ozymandias needs to deal with Dr. Manhattan and get him out of the picture and so he starts this very uh highly fabricated rumor that people who are exposed to Dr. Manhattan are getting cancer, so that is causing people a, a lot of alarm there's also in reaction to the squid's arrival people assuming that that has something to do with the with the rise of technology so in the ancillary material that Antonio is referencing suggests that a lot of the uh, technological advancements that are made in that era onward in the in the 80s into the 90s into the 2000s just didn't happen uh, that people like kind of looked that technology like the devil like if we keep pushing down in that in that direction we risk opening up more portals to squids uh, so <laughs> we got we got <laughs> to dial it back and one internal memo that is on HBO about uh, that's like told from the perspective of I believe it's a it's a a, it's a federal agent who is saying you got to use a computer now I know that stinks I know you've been filing things manually for years but we got to use computers We thought that cutting off access to computers would stop the squid rain and it's still raining squids so you got to use a computer uh, so it's fun these are it's really worth diving into this stuff if you're interested in the world of Watchmen. we'll bring it into the conversation as often as we can here on the podcast but definitely worth scoping out on your own if you're really loving the show.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more that we haven't talked about. That's that's referenced there. And if it is something that seems directly connected to the events of the show as we're watching it, we will highlight that for you and we will talk about it here. But definitely worth looking out on your own uh, if that's something that interests you, like you're saying, Josh. Josh, anything else no. that we need to hit from that material or otherwise?
0: No, no. Just a great week of Watchmen. More content up at THR.com slash Watchmen if you want to hear a little bit more about what happened with the Watchmaker's son sequence and more from the episode as well more comic book easter eggs and that kind of jazz check out thr.com slash watchman we want your feedback for these podcasts you can send that our way series regular at thr.com you can also tweet at us i'm at round howard antonio is at ac mazzaro two z is one r correct
1: correct hasn't changed my name has not changed uh, as i go along <laughs>
0: In the, in the week since we right. last spoke, I might.
1: I mean, I might change it at some point, but not right now.
0: Not right now. Uh, subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave us your ratings and reviews. We will be back next week talking about episode three of HBO's Watchmen. Thank you guys for listening. And until then, TikTok. 18 plus.